Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to today's Baseball America College Podcast. I'm Teddy Cahill. Joining me as always is Joe Healy, and we've got a lot to talk about here ahead of what is a really exciting week eight of college baseball season. We're around the midway point. There's no perfect midway point in a 15-week regular season, but we're, we're right around the midway point here, and there's, uh, there's a lot of great action around the country this weekend, so hopefully everyone, you know, now that basketball's over, Maybe we're picking up a few few more people into the uh, into the college baseball world, and if you're if you're listening for the first time this season, welcome in. Uh, we've got uh, we've got a lot to talk about here, and we're going to today on the podcast talk about uh, a change that the NCAA has made to the tournament structure, uh, a slight tweak for 2021 only. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about that, and then get into some of the bigger series of the weekend, which is highlighted by number one, Arkansas, and number three, Ole Miss. So we'll have plenty to talk about with that series and more. First, I got to let you know that the Baseball America College podcast is presented by Rapsodo. Rapsodo has become the industry standard in player performance data. Coaches use Rapsodo data as a measuring stick for player development and evaluation. The Rapsodo National Player Database is a free service that allows you to see how you stack up against your peers and provides a pathway to get discovered by scouts. You can check out the Rapsodo National Player Database at rapsodo.com slash national database. All right, Joe, like I mentioned, we're uh, we're around the midpoint. We'll, uh, we'll have some half or mid-season, I, I suppose, halfway point content uh, coming next week. Going to let them get a, another week under their belts. You know, just a lot of schools started so late and you know, just kind of a weird thing. It, we'll, we'll, we'll come out with some of uh, some midseason stuff next week. But it, th- this weekend really, to me, represents the, the halfway point of the season. And uh, it's uh, it's been a good one so far. And interestingly, here, as we approach the halfway point, uh, Georgetown got on the field this week for the first time all year. And they are just about the last team that is intending to play this season uh, to uh, to start the season. They got it took Georgetown's administration a really long time to approve any sort of a baseball schedule, but they uh, they ultimately did. And, and Georgetown uh, got its first game in this week. We're still waiting on two teams from the uh, Metro Atlantic, Marist and St. Peter's. They've had some COVID issues. And uh, then every Ivy League team, but Penn hasn't played. Uh, very uncertain as to whether any of them will play. They're all restricted to playing local competition only. So my guess is some of them never will, and probably a couple more will get to where Penn is now to, to being able to play some games. But all in all, very good to see Georgetown on the field and, and hopefully some of the the other the, the very few other teams that haven't played this season will be able to join them soon. And shouts to Penn because not, not only are they – back on the field and playing, but they seem to be 
kind of aggressively trying to schedule and try not, not aggressive with like the, the level of opponent. I just mean they're putting games on the schedule. And so they, they clearly are, are, have made it a priority to get what they can out of, out of this season. So kudos to them, the Metro Atlantic teams that haven't gone on the field yet, you feel for them. And, and I don't want to, I don't want to uh, downplay St. Peter's being disappointed not to get on the field, but Marist is disappointing because, you know, they are a legitimate in my mind, Metro Atlantic contender or were coming into the season the Metro Atlantic's best prospect, according to Carlos Colazzo, our, our draft expert here at BA, is Ryan Cardona, a pitcher for Marist. So that's a good team within the Metro Atlantic that hasn't gotten a chance to play. And, um, you know, I, I assume the Metro Atlantic is, is going to crown a champion based on winning percentage. But now you're talking Metro Atlantic teams are 9, 10, 11, 12 games into the season now. And so Marist is just going to end up missing 25% of its season. They're playing 40 game schedules there. And that's that's tough. So at least 25% of the season. So that's a, that's a really tough situation there for the Red Foxes. Uh, one of the better teams in the, in the Metro Atlantic, not just this year, but traditionally. On Georgetown, I will leave you with this one thing. Georgetown plays its games at Shirley Povich Field. Are you familiar with Shirley Povich, Teddy? Uh, yeah, great sports writer of the early 20th century. Who's, whose son is? I'm not sure. Mari Povich, the talk show host. is a daytime oh, okay. TV show, Mari. That's uh, Mari Povich's father, Shirley Povich, legendary sports writer for the Washington Post. And that's they, they, Georgetown plays its games at Shirley Povich Field. I, I had, you know, obviously I'm familiar with Mari as, as you are. He's ubiquitous on, on television. And <laughs> especially, I think every, well, I, I just speak for myself. Me and my college roommate went through a phase where we would come home from class and turn Mari on and just kind of like gawk at it, you know, uh, kind of in the same way people watch professional wrestling, I think. You know, we would just kind of uh, watch it and, and take it for what it is. So I, I definitely went through a middle of the day, you know, eating lunch in my apartment with my my roommate watching Mari face. But I I knew who Shirley Povich was and I knew who Mari was. I had never made that connection, actually, until I heard Mari on a podcast one time talking about his career and what led him to that point. And I finally made the connection that, that those two people were were related. So how about that? It is. Uh, I mean, it's that's remarkable. I did not know that either. the The great thing about Georgetown getting back into action is that it does mean the Big East is starting play this weekend, and that uh, been waiting for that. You know, we've been we've talked we talked earlier in the week about Villanova. We've talked about UConn. You know, St. John's was off to a pretty decent start uh, too, and and now you know it just didn't have a great feel for what any of those teams really were like, because UConn took a beating against a brutal schedule and Villanova's 12 and two, but really hasn't played, you know, anything close to the competition UConn has. So excited to see uh, that conference get into action. I always feel like the Big East has has some real potential as a baseball conference and it's not going to hit it this season. Uh, they, they just, some teams had, just weird non-conference seasons that that is not going to make it a multi-bid league but uh i uh i enjoy the the big east as a baseball conference so excited to see them get underway and, and happy for georgetown to to join the rest of of the country that is able to uh to be playing college baseball uh this season all right let's uh let's change gears here, Joe. Let's talk a little bit about this uh, this change to the NCAA tournament. And really what it is, is a change to the selection process, uh, specifically the host selection process. For a long time now, the hosts, the 16 regional hosts have been chosen, uh, you know, that 
that Memorial Day weekend, Selection Monday is Memorial Day, and the hosts get announced the night before the field is announced, I guess, to give them a little bit of a head start on getting preparations done for uh, for regionals. Well, this year, they're going to get an even bigger head start because the NCAA is going to make a decision on them in early May, about three weeks early. And the, the reason for that is that they're anticipating the, the need to create a testing, a COVID testing site at each regional. And it takes a while to get one of those operational and make sure it's running correctly. So they need to give them enough lead time to get that to get that that done. So that means that they're going to have to pick these these regional host sites in early May as opposed to in late May. And as NCAA tournament changes go in this unprecedented season year uh, when everyone's trying to play through a pandemic, this is actually a pretty easy one. Uh, you know, the basketball tournaments, of course, both went into bubbles, the men in Indy and the or in Indiana and the women in the San Antonio area. The soccer tournaments are getting moved entirely to the state of North Carolina. Usually they play on campus sites in the early rounds, but every soccer game is going to be played in the state of North Carolina where their final four is held uh, because they're using that they're going to minimize travel and then they don't have to worry about disparities and local regulations. You can get all under, you know, the, the state of North Carolina regulations. Uh, so I, you knew something was coming for baseball. I wondered if they might try and just group all of the regionals and super regionals together in one place, probably would be hard to do that in Nebraska. It being Nebraska and just not that many college baseball fields, but, you know, they could have gone to Texas or Florida or something for the first couple of rounds and then gone to Omaha. Uh, but instead, they're they're still going to preserve as much of the on-campus atmosphere as they can. Uh, they're just going to have to choose these, these regional hosts early. And that also means that if there are two upsets in a super regional or in a regional super regional pairing, so if neither of the one seeds advances, uh, it's still going to be held at one of these predetermined sites. It's not going to go uh, to, to one of those upset winners for Super Regionals because, again, they need the time to create the testing sites. So it's going to look a little different. There's going to be a team this year that makes a late charge that goes and wins a conference tournament. We see this a lot of times, uh, seeing the ACC, um, you know, somebody goes, gets hot, wins, wins the ACC tournament, and then they they host North Carolina did it in 2019 Florida state did it in maybe 18 or 17. Uh, so that that's not going to be possible this year. Uh, but again, as, as these changes go, I feel like this is a pretty light one. Uh, when you look at what's happened to other sports. I would agree. I also think it just isn't going to necessarily be, you know, I kind of fell into this when, when the news of this came out, I, I kind of fell into the, the thought of like, wow, this is, this is a huge deal. And I guess it is just from the standpoint of we're going to know three weeks early where the postseason is going to be played, but I don't think it, I, the selection process and what the hosts look like, I don't think is, is going to be all that different. I think that the language being used is based on, you know, merit and location primarily. And that's, I think the baseball committee would tell you that's what they're doing now. 
the location has been de-emphasized in recent years. You know, you can use the evidence of that year in 16 when we had no West Coast hosts, that location is kind of in the fine print as opposed to merit is in the bold face type. That's largely how it's done year to year as it is now. So I, I really don't think it's going to look any different. You're right that it it does end up robbing a, some team that, you know, gets hot at the right time, which we see these most years in, in, in major conferences. Florida State's definitely done it in past years where they, they hustle down the stretch to, to get into host position and then end up hosting. Now, those schools could still play their way into being a one seed. So that's, that's something worth playing for. Uh, you'd probably rather host if you had to choose one or the other, but playing as a one seed is not nothing. So there is a little bit to play for there, but, but you are going to lose the opportunity to have those types of teams pop up down the stretch. The type of team I think it helps is maybe a team like, you know, we're looking now at a team like Louisiana Tech, which is trying to do what Stetson did a couple of years ago and come from a, a non-traditional um, power conference and host a regional. And I think in those leagues, it's less about collecting. Actually, I don't think I know in those leagues, it's less about collecting resume changing wins and more about avoiding resume killing losses. And so three weeks early, you know, Louisiana tech's got to be like, sign me up because basically that buys us a few weeks of sure. They want to also be a one, but that buys basically buys them three weeks that they don't have to worry about playing their way out of being a host in conference USA. And there are some games that they're going to play in conference USA that they could take series losses that bump them out of hosting in a normal year. So they do avoid that a little bit. So that, that I mean, that's a team I think that could, could benefit from this, but in terms of what it actually looks like in the end, I, I, I don't think it's going to look all that different. Frankly, I am however, rooting for the uncanny Valley situation of two upset regional winners playing a neutral site regional in some random place, it'll have a very uh, Dallas Baptist versus Cal in the Santa Clara regional feel to it. I, uh, I'd have to look it up. I don't think we've had a traveling one seed since UConn hosted that regional. And I think that's right. 12 and Florida state went on the road as a one. Uh, it used to happen pretty commonly back when they were trying to spread regionals that around a little more, um, you know, geographically versus merit-based and went back in a time when less teams could host like now any team in a major conference, almost however you want to define major conference, like make that, make that 10 as big as you want. They can all pretty much host. It's, it's uh, you know, the, the facilities explosion has, has really helped in, in that way. Uh, you know, so I, I don't think we're, we're going to, it, it it's not unprecedented, I guess is what I'm saying, that if there is a traveling one, and there probably will be a traveling one somewhere, it, it'll probably happen. And is that going to be unfortunate? Yes, like absolutely so, um, especially if it's, uh, if it's a place that hasn't hosted in a while. Like let's say Pitt gets hot down the stretch and wins the ACC tournament and, well, they weren't picked as a one seed or picked as a host site. Well, I mean, that's unfortunate because, you know, how often is – has Pitt been in that situation and they've never hosted before. So yeah, that, that, that would be a really unfortunate thing. But again, to, when you consider the, where this could have gone, uh, you know, a, just the fact that there is a tournament after there not being a tournament a year ago, that's, that's pretty like, <laughs> we're, we're going to have to be happy about that. But then also when you, when you look at what has happened in some of the other sports and, and just how disrupted they have been versus what, 
this disruption will be, I, I think it's it's going to be largely pretty minimal. Joe, I do think this is a chance though to talk maybe a little bit about, um, you know, and I don't mean just us, but I like have a broader college baseball conversation about neutral site super regionals. Where do you stand on whether supers should be neutral site or not? I think I just default to not knowing, like I've not found myself in a, a discussion about this necessarily. So I, I haven't thought out both sides of it very much, but I tend to be, I tend to like things on campus sites because I think it's part of what makes the college baseball postseason unique in its own way. So I, I tend to be, um, to want to see more stuff on campus. However, I'm not so beholden to that viewpoint that I couldn't be swayed a different direction. I used to be really into neutral sites. I used to think it was kind of crazy and I still do on some level think it's kind of crazy that like you get like those are as important game, uh, games as, as really exist outside of Omaha, right? I mean, they, they are the most important games outside of Omaha. And for them to be played, like for some team to have the huge advantage that playing at home provides in college baseball, you know, think about what playing in Lubbock means for Texas Tech or playing in front of 13,000 fans at the New Dude or Alex Box or Bomb Walker means like it's massive in, in some cases. And I just, in a lot of cases, I don't think that the teams are all that differently separated. Like you think about, you know, mentioning Lubbock, like two years ago when Texas Tech hosted Oklahoma State, Tech, Tech was the eight, Oklahoma State was the nine. And so just, just by virtue of whatever thin line you had created between them as eight and nine overall seeds, Tech got the big massive advantage of being the home team. Like, wow, like that's, that's a lot. Like that, that's, that's, that's way more than like just being eight and nine seeds would, would indicate. So on that level, neutral site regional super regionals make a lot of sense to me. Like you eliminate that, but you also do eliminate, like I, I was at in 19, the super regional in Starkville. It, it was an electric, electric atmosphere. It was the bet, probably the best atmosphere I've ever seen a college baseball game in. And like, I know you can point to plenty of other super regionals around the country over the years that have been incredible atmospheres. I remember watching Fullerton and Long Beach on TV and like, you know, at, at, at Blair Field, um, you know, guys are on ladders, like, cause the crowd is packed so tight, trying to get a better vantage point. And uh, I mean, so that's really cool. And so I guess that that probably is better than worrying about like, is this really the most fair way to do it? Because it's not, but also little about the baseball postseason is particularly fair. That's not really the point here. Uh, so I, I guess I am I am more of the mind now of leave super regionals on campus sites, but the it, it would be a lot more equitable to uh, to find it elsewhere. I think. Yeah, I agree on all points. I mean, that's a good point you make. Is that it? It is a, a huge slant towards the team that's hosting the super regional. Um, you know, to which they would say to the victor goes the spoils. I get it, but you're right. And, and for a one in a sixteen, sure. Yeah. Why not? And and for uh, the the number three national seed who has to go, you know, who's playing a, a a three seed that upset the one in the other side, like okay, yeah, sure, you, you earned that. But in, in a lot of these cases, when you get down past 
the top five, top six, like it starts to be like, is that, is there really that much separation there? Like, and, sure. and you see all the time, there are upsets all over the place. Like there, there's not that much separation, even, you know, in 19, the two overall seed and the three overall seed, they were Georgia and Georgia tech, or maybe that was two and four or whatever. And neither one of them made it out of a regional. It, it, there, there's not that much to separate these teams, frankly. Yeah. Agreed. I, I but the other thing I, I think about as you were talking that I thought about is I like that jockeying for position as a host and as a top eight kind of gives like another layer to the stretch run in college baseball that you don't have in other sports, like in basketball. Sure. In college basketball, it's important that you're a, a two versus a four, for example. And there is some pride in being the number one seed in your region or the number one overall seed, but you, you kind of take that same discussion and you're able to widen it out to a larger swath of the country by talking about hosting regionals and hosting a super regional. So the bubble conversation is, is, is a big part of the stretch run, but I'm glad that we go in baseball a little bit beyond that. And we are also having a discussion about, about hosting. I just think it adds another layer to the season. That's, that's kind of cool and unique to the sport. Well, we'll have plenty more time to break down whatever implications there are from the, uh, the change in postseason uh, selection structure here. Again, I, I don't think it's going to be massive. It's really hard for me right now and for anyone to, to truly you know, explain or, or get a firm grasp on how different it's going to be until we, you know, the schools have not had this information for very long. We don't know uh, who might and might not bid because of this or, or because of local regulations or whatever. And until somebody makes a, you know, until we can report that a team is passing on bidding, I'm not going to worry about it. Uh, as we're crafting our projected field of 64 every week, I'm going to continue to operate as if it's pretty much normal. And then, uh, you know, if uh, the committee throws us a curveball, the committee throws us a curveball and I'll have three weeks of projected field of 64s to adjust to it. So we'll uh, we'll take it from there. But it's uh, it's something to watch, something to consider as especially because just the whole process is now accelerated. It does. I hadn't I, thought about that. It does make your life. Sorry to interrupt you. It does make your life a little bit easier that you're going to know these teams three weeks ahead of time. At least you won't have to do that work when you're uh, putting the field together. Those last. Few yeah, weeks. I mean, you get like the look at it the night before before you put out the final projection. But like, if they throw, and so it can be nice. I, I will miss that because it's like you get one like snapshot the night before, so you get a little bit of a line into their thinking. Like, are they taking RPI very seriously this year? Are they like? Can you tell if they're emphasizing something else? Like. What, what are they looking at? Uh, so I'll miss that snapshot, but on the flip side, maybe we'll get that snapshot a little early. I don't know. It's going to be hard to, to, to determine, but yeah, we at least will have the 16 host sites, right. For almost a month before, before the thing comes out. So that's a, that'll, uh, that, that'll, that'll look nice at least. All right. We're, uh, we're going to get into some of these week eight matchups here in a second, but first check this out. Okay, Joe, we're here in the portion of our preview show where we break down the the biggest matchups to know, uh, to watch in the in the week to come, the weekend to come, and uh, try and pick out some keys to to these teams winning. And like I said, it, it is a really stacked weekend. You know, we're only going to focus on five here. We could focus on a whole lot more. There are several top twenty-five showdowns. The ACC has like three of those alone, and we're not going to talk about any of them here. Uh, sorry, ACC, we, we've, we've talked a lot about them, and 
uh, you know, we'll uh, we'll certainly talk about them on Monday. Uh, the one to know there, though, the biggest one for me is is Florida State and Louisville. So uh, that's kind of the uh, honorable mention here. Watch uh, watch out for the Knolls and, and the Cardinals. Louisville really trying to get some things right. They're they're banged up on the mound, and it's uh, it's been costing them. And we'll see if Florida State can take advantage this weekend. But Joe, let's uh, let's start things off with number one at number three. That's Arkansas visiting Ole Miss. It's a big one for Ole Miss as they are coming off of a series loss on the road in Gainesville. They're in an absolutely brutal stretch of schedule, and now they have the Hogs coming to town. And this is an Arkansas team that is not afraid to play on the road. They have done very well away from Baumwalker Stadium. They're not going to be intimidated going into Swayze, considering that they swept in Starkville two weeks ago. Uh, they just they've they've just played very very well away from home. Now, having said that, they did last weekend get pushed pretty hard by Auburn. They win the series, but it was a very tightly played series, and that's an Auburn team that going into the weekend had not won an SEC game and is now one and eight in SEC play. So while I think Auburn is way better than the record, I, you know, it, it does show that Arkansas is not, uh, you can get to them and, you know, it, it requires some good pitching, but Ole Miss has that. And, you know, it's going to require good pitching for, for 27 innings is, is the real key here. And that's what Auburn was not able to do once they got into their bullpen Arkansas made them pay. And on the flip side, Arkansas's bullpen is, we've talked about it. It's, it's phenomenal. It may be the best in the country and, you know, I, scoring runs late against Arkansas is, is not a position you want to find yourself in. Uh, so Ole Miss got to get to, to Arkansas early and then find a way to hang on. And, you know, I don't know if Ole Miss has that kind of depth in the bullpen. I, yeah, I would, I totally agree there. I think it's the type of series where you can see, Ole Miss, the first half of the series, really feeling good about itself. You've got Hoagland on the mound. You've got Nikhazy on the mound. You know, we, we've seen at, at times this year that you can really that, – that Arkansas offense can get on you fast when it's feeling it, but it's had just as many times where it feels a little bit stuck in neutral. And last weekend against Auburn, for the most part, was one of those weekends. They did just enough. So I think, you know, Ole Miss can do – have a lot of success in the mound, and it's particularly, like I said, in the first half of the weekend before that depth starts to get – taxed a little bit but you know the second half of the weekend I think the 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 weight really kind of shifts to Arkansas because they are going to be getting into the depth of the Ole Miss not just the bullpen but also the third starter we talked about that uh, on the the weekend recap show on Monday that you know Ole Miss has a little bit of a third starter problem right now you know and so uh, that that's an opportunity probably for Arkansas to to feel pretty good about themselves offensively and on the other side you mentioned it Maybe Arkansas, again, we've said this about a million times, but, you know, maybe you don't feel super confident in any one pitcher at any given time for Arkansas, but they've just got so many guys they can cycle through that they're going to get it figured out on the mound and they can, they'll go 27 innings with you with their, with their bullpen. They can do that. They're that talented. And so if you're Ole Miss, I think you've, you know, it's, it's imperative you get off to a good start this weekend. Um, you know, and I, I don't like to necessarily put so much pressure on any single games, but I mean, if, if Arkansas comes out and, and wins on Friday, like I think that makes it a really hard uphill climb for Ole Miss because I just, I don't know that Ole Miss is equipped to your point to come back and, and, and win those types of ugly games that you have to win at the end of the weekend, especially when you're looking at a team that is going to be without Tim Elko 
who unfortunately a knee injury earlier in this week has him out. Uh, I believe it's a, a partially torn UCL. ACL. ACL. But all, all those, you know, there's, uh, I, I am no, I'm no doctor, so I can't tell you the difference <laughs> there, but one of those ligaments in his knee is in not good shape. And so Tim Elko, uh, you know, probably all things considered, uh, best bat in the Ole Miss lineup, you know, it's, it's either him or Kevin Graham uh, out. And that certainly doesn't help. Um, so yeah, I, I just think Ole Miss is in a position where it needs to get off to a strong start this weekend. Cause if it's trying to come back and win Saturday and then especially on Sunday to try to capture a series win, I just don't know if that's a recipe for success for them. The interesting thing about that torn ACL is that Elko is not undergoing surgery right away. He's going to try and rehab it and see if he can play on it. Um, no doctor here. I have no idea the likelihood of that, but we do know he's out this weekend and expecting him back at any time. This season is, I would say, unlikely, but, you know, we'll see. Um, I, I haven't seen his MRI, even if I was a doctor, but I'm not. Uh, so the, the larger point for Ole Miss is that they now have to find a way forward, at least in the immediate term, without one of their stars offensively and this is a team that has been pretty star driven which you know i'm not sure how surprising that is but i mean when, when given that they lost keenan and serviet uh servideo to the draft last year and then they, they still found a couple guys to step up and take over the the offensive production that those two had 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 for Ole miss in, in 2020 and earlier uh, in Kevin Graham and Tim Elko was, was impressive. Uh, the, the issue is they now have to find somebody to do that again here last weekend. Um, according to, to Nick Suss, our, our friend at the Clarion ledger, Tim Graham or Tim Graham, Kevin Graham and Tim Elko combined to hit 440 against uh, Florida. The issue was that nobody else did much of anything that weekend or at least not enough. And, you know, so TJ McCants has played well, but he's not the power threat that Elko is like, they don't have that big time power threat. Now he has nine home runs on the season. There's, there's no one that's going to, going to pick up that unless, you know, they Ben Van Cleave figures it out or Kale Baker, you know, they don't have those kinds of, of big time power bats on the bench. They're just going to have to get power production, throughout the lineup. They really need Hayden Leatherwood to, to find something um, that would be very helpful. Uh, but this is, this is going to be a different offense without Tim Elko in it. And they don't have any time to try and figure out who that, you know, who is going to provide that offense and how that offense is going to run. You know, not only is this the number one team in the country, but this is uh, a pitching staff in Arkansas that can run a whole lot of different looks at you, lefties, righties, power, uh, you know, more, more finesse, big time curveballs, exploding sliders, like whatever you want, Arkansas has got it. So even if you figure something out against, you know, say Zebulon Vermillion, like, well, is that going to play against Wicklander? Is that going to play against Lockhart? And then how is that going to play against Paulette and, you know, Jackson Wiggins and, and all these other different looks that, that they're going to throw at you. So it's uh it's a really tough weekend to figure it out from that perspective, and it doesn't get any easier because then they go to Mississippi State uh, the following weekend. So they're going to have to try and find some answers offensively in a hurry. Indeed, it, it's just going to be a little bit of mix and match. What they've already started to 
to do some of that. You know, they had two midweek games, which is probably helpful this week to have had midweek games to, to try to play with some stuff. But, you know, uh, it, guys like Trey LaFleur and, and Kale Baker played in the midweek after having not played for a little while. So, you know, maybe they're messing around with the idea of those guys being back and being a part of the offense. You know, Ben Van Cleve has been struggling. So, you know, there, he's a question mark. Does John Rice Plumley somehow end up in, in more playing time here? So they, they do have I'm some here guys. for that. They did, no doubt. They do have some 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 levers to pull here, um, but none of those levers. Well, I feel confident in saying anyway, they're not going to pull a lever and get like a new Tim Elko. That's just not going to happen. But they do have some guys. Um, it's just a matter of finding the guy who's going to be most consistent over time. And, and boy, isn't that always the question? Absolutely. We've talked plenty about Arkansas. Arkansas is keys here, the same as they always are. Just you know, find the right mix on the weekend in, in terms of, you know, pulling the right levers uh, on the pitching staff. They got plenty of levers to pull and, you know, do enough offensively play amazing defense. That, that's Arkansas. That's what they're going to be trying to do here on the road. I, I think that, you know, I am, I am very interested to see how Ole Miss lines this up against what Arkansas can do on the mound. So we'll, uh, we'll definitely be watching this series, which uh, you can watch game one of on SEC net. Uh, before moving over to SEC Network Plus the rest of the weekend. All right, Joe, let's uh, head over to the Big 12 where there's a big showdown in Lubbock. It's Texas Tech hosting TCU. We kind of alluded to this on the uh, the, the Monday podcast, and, and we talked about how Texas Tech is a totally different team outside of Lubbock and that showed up again this last weekend when they lost a series at Kansas State and TCU is coming in with all kinds of momentum. They've really figured things out over the last couple of weeks. They're 6 and 0 in Big 12 play. They are the conference leaders right now, but they have the very unfortunate task of having to to go and prove it in Lubbock. Um it's again, Texas Tech just plays so much better there. They haven't lost a series in Lubbock since 2018. Uh, so yeah, just good luck with, uh, with all of that for, for TCU. But at the same time, TCU has a lot of positive things going for it. It's been pitching well, it's just been playing well overall. And uh, you know, they, they do seem after losing that series to Gonzaga and then, you know, kind of, stumbling through a couple games in the immediate aftermath of that, they do seem to have really righted the ship here over the last couple of weeks. And, you know, Joe, th- this has all kinds of implications in the big 12 title race. I mean, Texas is going to have its say in that as well, but you know, if TCU wants to be in the mix, this is the weekend that they really have to show it. For sure. Like this is, this feels like a, like it's just a huge opportunity for TCU and, and lose. Look, I mean, losing the series is, is a not going to be anything to be ashamed of because of, of how difficult tech is to play in Lubbock. It's also not going to derail the season for TCU. Like all of their big picture goals would still very much be in front of them. However, you know, I think this is an opportunity for TCU to show this is the team we thought it could be, and maybe even better than we thought it could be in the preseason because, you know, we had them pegged roughly what in the middle of the top 25, 15 ish, 13, 13, something like that. Yeah. So, I mean, this is a team that, could maybe even be a little better than we thought it could be. If they're, if they're the type of team that can go into Lubbock and, and win a series, that's very much on the, on the table. And it does feel like just a, a, against admittedly, you know, some, some of the softer side of the big 12 they face so far, but it does admittedly 
feel like we talked about on Monday, a team that's, that's really started to figure out who it is. Some of the guys are just playing better and that always helps, right? It's really easy to say like, Oh, this team has figured some stuff out when, you know, guys are just playing better. But I, I but I do think they've, they've really kind of narrowed on who their guys are. Um, they feel like they've settled on, you know, settled on the guys who are, are kind of um, things kind of revolve around uh, the, the, the things on the mound have gotten a little bit better. And for Texas tech, I, you know, I'm trying not to overreact too much to things like, you know, I, I wrote it up in the top 25 recaps. So I think it's notable, but you know, Patrick Monteverde got hit at Kansas state in a way that he hasn't been hit all year. And I think at this point we can be confident that he is clearly a very, very good pitcher at a big 12 level, perhaps one of the best in the big 12 in terms of just college pitchers. So I, I think that is real. Um, and I'm trying not to overreact though too much to the idea that maybe he's, um, you know, maybe he had been pitching over his head. He might have been to this point. But the thing about Texas Tech is that I feel like they had been kind of masquerading on the mound as a team that they weren't necessarily. Because, you know, I wonder if if even Tim Tadlock knew how good Patrick Monteverde was going to be through the first six weeks before he got hit up in, in week seven. So he'd kind of turned into like this workhorse that I, I certainly didn't anticipate, and, and maybe they didn't either. And Brandon Birdsell had been pitching so much better of late. So you really had kind of two workhorses in a way that, I didn't anticipate with them and it kind of made them a team that I thought maybe they weren't. I think it's more of like an Arkansas type team where typically where this is typically the way they are, where they're just going to throw a lot of different guys at you and they're going to figure it out as they go along. And I think ultimately that's still the team they are. I think just for a few weeks because of the overwhelming success of a couple of guys, they were able to masquerade as, as something else. And that's not to say that they shouldn't do that if that works, but um, I think maybe now they settle back into more of being what being what I think we anticipated them being from a pitching standpoint um, all along, uh, and, you know, but we'll have to obviously, we'll have to obviously see on that. The offense is the offense. Like I don't have really too many questions about that. I, I was talking to a, a power five coach earlier this week who unprompted, we were kind of tangentially talking about teams that are, you know, highly ranked, but, just unprompted told me that Jace Young is his favorite player in college baseball. Um, and this is a coach, by the way, who doesn't play Texas tech. Like it's not like a, a big 12 coach. Like it, it's, it's a coach who, you know, just was like, you know, I really like the Jace Young, the Jace Young guy. Like he's my favorite player. My favorite swing in college baseball is, is the way he phrased it. So, and uh, you know, there's a lot to like obviously there, but the, the, the tech offense is the tech offense. Like they've got the star power at the top with, with, Young and, and Cal Conley and, and Drew Baker and you know noisy maybe not having quite the season he would have hoped but is still productive but the depth is there as well offensively they've got a lot of guys who can do a lot of different things so uh, you know that that's been been right on par there so so that offense there's really no question about how good it can be um, you know even in this series loss they still had a game where they scored 17 on K-State. And oh, by the way, that was the game that Jordan Wicks started. And that's supposed to be the first rounder. That's the guy you're not supposed to beat. Uh, so there's there's really no question about that offense. What I have the question for you, Joe, and you know more about TCU than I do at this point, and I really need to uh, kind of pay more attention this weekend to, to this series so that I can kind of get up to speed on the Frogs. But okay, so how are they going to go about stopping it? They have Russell Smith, they have Austin Krobe, they have Johnny Ray in the rotation. Those three guys have been pretty solid all season long. Feel good when they're on the mound. Feel good when Halen Green gets in the game to close. He's not our traditional closer. They're going to use him in multi-inning 
so he can cover a couple innings backing up one of those guys. Charles Kane has been kind of moved into a bit of a tandem situation. Uh, he's experienced, you know, that's fine. Do they have what it's going to take though, to cover 27 innings against that offense in that ballpark? You know, a couple other guys in the bullpen that have been used a fair amount that have good numbers, River Ridings and Garrett Wright, they haven't really gone to in Big 12 play much. I think both of those guys, despite the fact that they've combined for 16 appearances on the season, I think they have a total of two Big 12 appearances between them. So I don't know, is there is there a concern here that if Tech either waits out the starter or gets to the starter that your TCU isn't going to have anything behind it. Oh, hundred percent. That's the concern. I mean, that, that's the way, that's the way tech really makes this series look decisive is it forces TCU's hand early in games, you know, to, to, to pull probe or, or Russell Smith in, in one of the first two games and really uh, you know, touches up TCU's depth on the mound. That, that's how this, that's how this plays out in my mind. If it doesn't go well, for TCU, but that's, if you're TCU, I think you can look at it the other way where never have they felt better. I don't think about what they've got going on the mound because, you know, Austin Russell Smith's been good all year. Austin Crowe has pitched better of late. Charles King has been better of late. His numbers just look kind of okay now, but they've, they've been better actually uh, the last few weeks. So they've been, you know, kind of tandeming him with Johnny Ray. So I think TCU feels like, you know what, we're, we're, we're getting them at a good time. So I think they've got confidence there, but I think you're right. The question is, what if one of those first two starters goes two and a third and Tech puts seven runs on them? That's that's not the recipe. That I, like, obviously made. that's bad, but like I would be more concerned with what if they go five because you can't ask Haman Green to do four, or if he does do four, you've lost him the rest of the weekend. So you know, that would be... That'd be my concern, like that they just get five okay innings and that they leave the game either down a run or tied, uh, or even just up one run. That that it's it's a, a an okay start, nothing more, nothing less, and your offense hasn't hasn't helped them a whole lot. And you're looking at it and like, okay, how do we bridge this to Halen Green? How do we get Halen Green the ball with the lead? That that would be my like if if they if they rough up one of those first two starters, like, that's just a problem. There's, there, there, there's not, that game's probably just going to go down as a loss, but how, how do you manage a tight game in which your starter only gets you four or five? I would, that would be my bigger concern for TCU. Yeah. I mean, they're going to need in that scenario, you know, they're going to need somebody to do something that they haven't really done, whether that's, you know, you mentioned Garrett Ryder, River Ridings, it, those guys getting exposed to more big 12 play and being successful or, guys like Drew Hill or Dalton Brown, guys who are a little more proven that just haven't done it this year, haven't had a ton of success this year uh, to be more effective than they've been. So, you know, in, in that scenario, look, I mean, if TCU gets, you know, seven and seven and then gets four and four from the, the combo on Sundays, like that, they feel, they're feeling great about that. Anything short of that, though, they are going to be asking guys to just do some things they haven't done so far this season. I think that's the, the long and the short of it. All right, so that is your Big 12 series of the weekend. We'll have plenty to talk about coming out of that one, I am sure, because like I said, this is uh, a series with some really significant bearing on the Big 12 race going forward. All right, let's flip back to the ACC, or the SEC, excuse me, uh, where 
Florida is taking on Tennessee in Knoxville. It's a top 10 series. This is something of a rivalry. I don't know how much it extends to the baseball field. Like it definitely does, but I don't know that it's uh, as intense as, you know, it's definitely not as intense as a Florida Vanderbilt uh, or, you know, any number of other SEC rivalries, even as South Carolina and Florida, I don't think. But at the same time, this is a top 10 series and it hasn't been a top 10 series in, oh boy, <laughs> it's been several, several years uh, since uh, since we've had this series mean this much. Florida coming off of a big series win at home against Ole Miss, Tennessee riding high. They haven't lost a series all season. And Joe, the reason I really want to talk about this series is because I feel like we haven't talked much about the Vols here on the podcast. They're up to seven in the top 25. And it's just been really because for the last month and a half, they've just been humming along. Like we talked about putting them on upset watch against a couple of teams did not happen for any of those, those potential upsets. Tennessee took like just swatted them away. Like it was nothing. And, you know, here they are coming off of a, a nice series win at Alabama. The tide pushed them. Uh, they, they really gave them a good series while everyone was locked in the basketball game Saturday. Uh, that was a fantastic game. I finally did flip over, but uh, Alabama and Tennessee were playing extra innings. And I was like, well, I mean, sure, the basketball game might be good, but like Alabama and Tennessee, they're, they're, they're an extra innings here. And finally, with like two minutes left in regulation, I was like, okay fine. I'll watch the basketball game. Uh, but Tennessee got all they can handle down in Tuscaloosa. And, and now they've got the Gators coming in Knoxville. Yeah. Two things can definitely be true with Tennessee. On the one hand, they have played a lot of close games the last couple of weekends, like both the LSU series and the Alabama series could have gone either way in a different scenario. Um, so that, that is, that is one thing they've also played um, th- this will be the first real big test Tennessee has had within the SEC. You and I like Alabama as a team, but th- there's no denying their, their record in the SEC is not good right now. Same with LSU, same more or less with Georgia. So that is also true. And on the other hand, this is a team that's probably better than, than most people have noticed so far because they haven't played those high profile series yet. Um, I also think it's a team that could- 25 and five. Yeah, no, it's, it is impressive. Like there's just no denying that. And even some of their other stuff on the schedule, right? Like we, we banged most, them. Most wins in the country. We banged them on that Indiana state split. Now it's kind of like, well, that's a pretty good result. I mean, they would have preferred to win that series. You would predict them to do so, but like, you know, that's obviously serving them pretty well these days. So, um, but at the same time, it's also a team that I think could honestly be playing better. Like, I think there are some, some places where they could still show some improvement and, and, and maybe be even better than they've been so far, because offensively they're pretty top heavy where, you know, Liam Spence and, and Jake Rucker have been excellent. Drew Gilbert's been, been really good, but you know, Jordan Beck is hitting below 250. He's hit with some power. So sure. Like, I, you know, that he has been an effective offensive player, but under 250, Max Ferguson is hitting 220. Connor Pavloni's hitting 215. So I think there is actually some upside potential there for this Tennessee offense to be a little bit more consistent than they've been so far. And the pitching staff, I think deserves a lot of credit. I mean, it's pitching staff that's dealt with injuries, uh, whether you're talking about Jackson Lee, who's gone for the year or a guy like, you know, Chad Dallas has missed a start. You know, I feel like they've had a couple of other guys who have just missed a little, missed a weekend here or there, and they continue to patch it together. And a lot of things is that true freshman blade Tidwell, I think deserves a lot of, of thanks for that. I also think it's just, um, you know, you talk about these pitching staffs like Arkansas that, 
are able to just throw a lot of guys at you. Tennessee is that as well. Tennessee does have more guys who have eaten up a lot of innings, so they're a little more defined than Arkansas is. But when they're pitching at their best, I do feel like it is a type of pitching staff that what they're going to do is go to a lot of different guys in the bullpen and give you a lot of looks because they do have a lot of guys who give you varied looks and also a lot of guys who can really bring heat at you. So it's a, it's a good pitching staff that has been hampered by some injuries and they've, they've continued to kind of just um, to, to muddle through it. Yeah. It's a, uh, it's a really interesting pitching staff. Uh, like, like you said, they've done a great job at managed managing it there. Tony Vitello and pitching coach Frank Anderson just done, done a great job. And, and we talked about this when Tony was on the podcast in the off season, just how Frank does a really good job at, you know, getting guys innings and, you know, not being as concerned maybe about roles or, um, you know, at least getting guys comfortable pitching in different roles. Uh, you know, you've got, you've got Sean Hunley, who's a reliever, uh, who's thrown 30 innings already. Um, you know, that you're not going to find that on, on too many teams around the country. And they've been 30 really good innings and Kirby Conley it doesn't have quite 30 innings. He's got 24, uh, but you know, he's also, you know, going out there and, and, and pitching really well. And, and Redmond Walsh has, has pitched very well for them at the back of all games. So if they can get the guy, get the ball to those guys, uh, you know, Walsh is more of a traditional one inning guy, uh, but, but Hunley and Conley, both multi-inning relievers, if they can get the ball to them, you know, they're going to be in pretty good shape and their starters have done a good job of getting them the ball. And, like you said, Joe, I mean, it hasn't always been the same collection of three guys, and they're doing this without preseason All-American Jackson Leaf, who can pitch, could have pitched in multiple roles, but it was is lost for the season. They, you know, they, it's it, I've been very impressed. I knew that the pitching staff was capable of this, but it, just to see them go out and do it, and you know, have these kinds of of performances from you know, okay, Tidwell was a guy who was getting a ton of he had a ton of helium right before the draft. He came out of quarantine and was like immediately pumping a hundred and guys were running in to see him. And it just happened to it in the process. Like if it had happened a month before, maybe he wouldn't be at Tennessee right now, but he is. And, you know, he's done everything you could ask of him as a true freshman pitching in the rotation and okay. You don't have your preseason all American in Jackson Leaf. like fine. Redmond Walsh has, he's been through this. He's, He's a veteran. He's ready to go there at, at the back of games and they found other answers. And so I, I think that Florida is going to be in for a, a tough weekend at the plate, just knowing what, what Tennessee can throw at it on, on the flip side. I don't know. We, we haven't gotten word from Florida, whether they're going to continue with their tandem starters. Kevin O'Sullivan was uh, non-committal at the end of last weekend. We talked about, you know, what he said and, how, you know, it, it's certainly an option, but that what he saw from Franco Alamon and Christian Scott in those roles either gave him the option of continuing it in that way or returning them to the bullpen, just using them more aggressively, going to them faster or for, for a longer appearance. Uh, so we'll see what they do this weekend. Regardless, I, I think the, you know, the Tennessee offense is solid. The Florida pitching staff has what it takes to limit them, I think. I'm more, a little more interested in the the matchup of of the Vols pitchers versus the Gators hitters. Um, you know, Florida still maybe searching for some things there. Judd Fabian hasn't 
uh, you know, he, he continues to hit home runs and not, you know, strike out. He, he hits home runs and strikes out way too often. Um, that that's finding a little more consistency from him, uh, would be, would be a nice step forward for, for the Gators offense. But you know, they, I, I just think in general, the Gators could use a little more consistency, but you know, at the same time I say that, but they scored runs in South Carolina. So, uh, it's not like they don't have the ability to do so. I think Tennessee, more so than Florida, is going to want to ugly up this series a little bit because I think that's an opportunity for them to play to their strength a little bit, which is, um, you know, if, if we're going to have to go like arm for arm in the bullpen here, um, I actually kind of like Tennessee's opportunity to, 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 to win that way um, because, it, you know, Florida has kind of scrambled to figure out what they're what they're going to do out there on the mound and, and maybe man for man, they're more talented than Tennessee on the mound, but this is kind of how Tennessee plays. Like they're just comfortable playing that way that, you know, they're going to have a four inning relief appearance from a guy if that's what they have to do. And so I think Tennessee would be perfectly happy getting this game kind of uglied up um, to where they're not, they're not playing catch up against a Florida pitching staff that could be, uh, that could shut them down to your point. So I think if, yeah, if- I think that would be a problem. Like the, because Florida really, if they shut down Liam Spence and Jake Rucker, things start looking a lot bleaker for, for the Tennessee offense. They, they could get production from other guys, but they just haven't gotten the, that kind of consistent production. Yeah. If this series gets played clean and pretty straightforward, I, you know, I think Florida has got a really good chance here. If, if Tennessee can really kind of drag Florida down a little bit and, and force this to be like a, let's go arm for arm in the bullpen kind of thing. I, I think Tennessee might be in good shape in that scenario. Yeah, I uh, I would agree with that. If if this goes to script, if Florida just generally right now, I, I think when you're playing Florida, you have to get them off their script. Whatever they decide that script is, whether it's traditional starters, whether it's tandem starters, whether whatever whatever Sully decides the script for that weekend is, if he can stick to that, if Florida is allowed to play to that plan, they will win. If you can get them off of that, that's when you know they they start to to run into into trouble. Is Tennessee the team that can do that? I don't know. Tennessee causes problems on the bases. Um, they have guys that can run the ball out of the park one to nine, but no one power hitter. So it's a, it's an interesting offense. It's a tricky offense to, to truly shut down at any one point, but it's also not the kind of offense that I associate with, you know, huge innings out of. So I, I, I'm intrigued by this series. And like I said, this is the biggest Tennessee Florida series in a decade at least and more than a decade like 15 years probably uh so that by itself is pretty cool and uh I'll I'll be interested to see uh see how Knoxville reacts to uh to having the Gators come to town for a top 10 showdown all right let's uh my last series that I I've picked out here is a rivalry series and that could mean one of two really big ones um, it, it could mean Oregon and Oregon State, but frankly, a we saw that like we saw that series uh, a month ago or something in Corvallis. Oregon won it. We talked about it then. I think mostly things are are still true what we said at the time, except that Oregon's proved itself a little bit more. So, Joe, let's go to the Big Ten. It's Ohio State going north to play the team up north, as as the Buckeyes call them. It's Michigan, and the Wolverines, we have them in the top 25. They've been in the top 25 all season. They are still looking for a big breakthrough weekend. 
They really haven't had it since opening weekend uh, when they they beat Iowa three out of four in Texas. Everything since then has either been like, okay, you swept Purdue. Uh, that's what we expected out of you. Or like, why did you just go two and two again? Or why did it look so hard to beat Penn State? Um, this is their opportunity to make a statement. This is also an Ohio State team, however, that just made a statement by sweeping Indiana in Columbus. The, the Bucks are coming in very hot. That made them, you know, right there in the mix at the top of the Big Ten, along with the Wolverines, Nebraska, and, you know, Ohio State moved past Indiana, but I, I think the Hoosiers are still in the mix there. Um, and now if Ohio State can build off of that, this would be a really big opportunity for the Buckeyes to kind of shake things up in the Big Ten. Yeah, you're certainly heartened if you're, if you're Ohio State. You're certainly heartened by what you did last week, and that felt like a really big series in terms of getting things moving in the right direction for a team that really had just kind of been treading water. You know, they had some good weekends. I saw them have a pretty good weekend to start things off in, in Greenville, the first weekend of, of Big Ten play, but. Since that point, they've really treading water is probably actually being a little kind to what they had done. That last weekend felt like a, a little bit of a breakthrough, and the big story, of course, was was Seth Lonsway with the way he dominated. And, and that's you know, if Ohio State is going to be a team as good as we thought they could be, and certainly as good as they hope they can be, that's item that's item number one on the list is is Seth Lonsway dominating to that level. But it's going to have to be more than Seth Lonsway because college baseball history is littered with tons of examples of teams with just a, a number one that can go out there and beat anybody in the country. And then what do you get after that? I mean, you look at, you know, Minnesota just had Max Meyer and, you know, outside of the year when they also had Patrick Fredrickson having a historically great freshman season and had a good bullpen full of veteran guys and a veteran lineup, uh, you know, Max Meyer by himself could not lift Minnesota up to, you know, being a postseason team, at least in the sample that, that we saw. So um, it has to be more than that. And Ohio State showed that last weekend that it could be more than that, you know, whether it's, you know, in this case, it's, it's Garrett Burhan and Jack Neely, but, um, you know, uh, whoever it ends up being, I think those are the two guys that are, that, that have, have pitched well. Um, and those are the guys that, that have the stuff also to, to, to dominate in the way that, that Lonsway does from time to time. But I think it was a, a real positive weekend for, it being not just a one-man show, but being a, a, a good, fully-formed pitching staff. And then the offense is a little better. We talked about how, how much the offense had struggled. And it wasn't, uh, you know, an offensive explosion by any stretch of the imagination in their series win over Indiana. But, uh, you know, now it's not just Cade Kern and a bunch of guys. You know, Zach DeCenzo had, had a good weekend, and, and he's now up hitting over 300. So maybe a little bit of a work in progress offensively that's at least moving, moving in the right direction. Um, and Michigan has a lot to prove here. Like you said, I mean, it's um, just such a strange season for Michigan. Um, you know, it, part of the strangeness, to be honest, is that the number of Monday games they played, where it just feels like every time you and I talk about them on a, on a Sunday night to try to rank, you know, we just kind of feel like, well, we really wish we could see a fourth game, whether that's, you know, in the opening weekend where they end up winning three or four against Iowa, like that would have made us feel a little bit, better about them, but they've also got Monday losses to, to Michigan state and, and now Maryland uh, made it to where like, you know, maybe we would have viewed them a little bit differently had we had those data points ahead of time. So um, really weird season. And, I, and I've not done a full accounting of, of, you know, where some of those inconsistencies 
are for Michigan, but uh, we certainly still believe in the, in the talent here. Um, and you know, that's why we, we still have them ranked where they are. So it's a, I think a big series on, on both ends in a big 10, frankly, that um, probably looks a little more condensed than the big 10 would ultimately like. If you are going to start talking about what the big 10 is going to do uh, in the postseason, I'm not saying that it's the worst case scenario has played out. Uh, for the Big Ten in terms of getting as many teams in the postseason as, as they want, but it certainly is not a great start down that road. I would say in some respects, Michigan has found the landmines that probably existed coming into the year. I remember writing their preseason capsule and thinking like, oh, well, yeah, I mean, we have them ranked and like, here's all the reasons why, but like also the reasons why this might not go as well are pretty apparent as well. They have not been quite as deep on the mound as I think that was anticipated. Blake Beers, who was really, really good in the early going last year, has not been very good this year. Stephen Hatcher, who I think still is, you know, an incredible pitcher worthy of being a preseason All-American, hasn't quite pitched that way. I mean, he's been very good, but has he been the best pitcher in the big 10? Like I thought he was going to be. No, I like, I, he's been very good, but not quite to that level. So that's those two things aren't going quite as well as maybe you would have thought they would. Michigan's pitching well overall. Uh, That's not particularly the problem. I, I think the bigger problem is offensively where they're getting some good offense from grad transfers, Christian Malfetta and Benjamin Sims. And Jimmy Obertrop has eight home runs and eight home runs in 19 games in big 10 play is pretty significant. Uh, you know, hitting home runs in the North this time of year is not the world's easiest thing. And I know Michigan played two weekends, not in the North, but still um, outside of those guys, you know, Clark Elliott's been fine and it's they're, they're still looking for some other answers offensively. Um, you know, they're, they're going to have to find some more consistency from, from some other guys. And, you know, this weekend trying to get the offense right against that Ohio state pitching staff, it's really tough. And I, so I, I have concerns on, on that front, uh, just in terms of this weekend, like how, how are you going to get things going when you're going to face a pitching staff that has the ability and it's not like Ohio state does what they did last weekend. It's not like they've done that every week. If they, if they had done that, they, they wouldn't have been in the position where last week was, was so critical for them. But just having seen that last weekend, having seen what Lonsway is capable of and what Burnhead is capable of and Neely and all those other guys, that's, uh, that's disconcerting for an offense that, that hasn't been uh, fully locked in yet uh, for Michigan. The kind of X factor here is that if you follow college football, at all, you're well aware that Ohio State has more than had Michigan's number for the better part of the 21st century. What's a little less, I mean, obviously it's not as as as, as well known because this is college baseball and not college football. But even even within the the college baseball circles, I I, I don't get the sense that this is uh, as as prominent. But Greg Beals is 15 and five against Michigan. He's been at Ohio State for a decade now. Um, he just doesn't lose many games to Michigan. Does that matter this weekend? Maybe it does. Maybe it doesn't. But you know, they just don't lose series to Michigan typically. And 
So I uh, I would not be at all surprised if Ohio State keeps this going, both because of the pitching, uh, you know, the, the the advantage they should have pitching to to you know in terms of the, the matchup between their arms and Michigan's bats. There it is, uh, that advantage, and then also you know, yeah, there's a number next to Michigan's name. Yeah, Michigan went to the College World Series and finished runners up, or one win away from the national title, but nobody at Ohio State is going to be intimidated by that at all. Did you see uh, that the Sunday game in this series is getting the ESPN two treatment? I did as it should. I have complained so many times that college baseball does not market, does not promote, does not showcase its rivalries enough. Here is the best rivalry in the big 10. They are both very good teams. Like let's do this. I'm, I'm happy for that. I also just don't think they've done a very good job of, I get why so much of the, uh, the, the volume of college baseball games on TV comes from the SEC in particular, but also the ACC. Part of it is also because ESPN owns those conference networks. I get Yeah, that. I mean, that has more to do with FS1 not wanting to show college baseball, I would suggest, and ESPN having the deals it has with the conferences it has. For sure. So I, I get the business aspects of it, but I do think there is a bet you could make on, um, and it's the same bet the Big Ten has made on what the conference could be if you move the schedule back. We're not going to get into all that, but I'm just saying that, you know, you put anything Michigan, Ohio State on TV, and I'm not saying it's going to outdraw, you know, it's certainly not going to outdraw the final round of the Masters, which will be going on at the same time. However, you put those two big brands on TV, and I think people are going to find it. Uh, with relative regularity. So I think it's a, a, a smart move by ESPN, honestly, to go in on this on this rivalry, at least just in this one, you know, little isolated incident. And that'll be a cool deal because most of the games will be, the rest of the country will be over by then. So it's a window that they're going to have uh, to really showcase that game. And, and that's a, a cool deal for sure. Yeah, I wish the Big Ten Network were rising to the occasion as well and, you know, picking up the other two games. But uh, to, to have... The, the national showcase and ESPN two just doesn't show that much college. Like SEC yeah, network is rare. great. Yeah. ACC network is great. They use ESPN U a lot, but to get onto one of the big ESPNs, like it doesn't happen all that often. So uh, I, I think that that, yeah, Sunday afternoon, four o'clock, um, you know, maybe the masters will frankly be over by then. I mean, the green jacket won't have been put on yet, but maybe you'll, you'll know. Um, so I, I would definitely say check this one out if uh, if you find yourself on Sunday afternoon into the early evening thinking about like well what 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 do we got on TV like Michigan Ohio State ESPN two that's a uh, that's a very good appointment to make. All right, Joe. I talked about the uh, the series that I picked out. They were kind of the the most prominent series. We're now throwing it to you for your pick of uh, slightly more under the radar. Uh, pick for for something that college baseball fans should should be checking out this weekend. So, uh, hat tip to you on this one because I was kind of unaware of it that it was uh, had the prominence. That oh, it, I did this to myself. Yeah, you did. <laughs> you really did. Had you not said anything, now maybe I would have landed on it eventually anyway. But um, so we've got a big one in the OVC this weekend. Uh, so strap in, folks. Um, we've got Murray State, which. Um, is six and three or four and two in the conference, depending on how you look at it. I think they had an, a conference series or a series against Eastern Illinois that does not count as a conference series. If I'm reading their official schedule correctly, or maybe that's incorrect, but either way they are at the top of the conference. 
and uh, they're playing on the road at, or sorry, at home against SEMO, which is seven and five so far this season. And I wrote uh, just quickly, I was going to note that I wrote in, in off the bat or off the bat, that's your thing. Uh, three strikes this week about how congested the Southland conference is. And that's interesting to me because that's just very on brand for the Southland. You know, the Southland is year after year, you've got a team or two at the top and a team or two at the bottom. Um, and then everyone else is kind of in the middle. And for a league that's 13 teams, that's, that's pretty rare. You usually kind of have more defined tiers, but you just don't get that in the Southland. I could have also written this about, by the way, uh, the OVC, where the worst team is four and eight. And the best teams are six and three, four and two, and seven and five. Like there's just not a lot of separation here at all. I think it's just um, a real free-for-all in that conference this season. Uh, but Murray State and SEMO are off to two of the better starts here. Um, good for Murray State, obviously. You know, SEMO is no no stranger to being in this position. So, but, but for Murray State, it's, it's a little more rare for them to be at, at the top of the, the conference at this stage, even as early as it is. Murray State's kind of interesting because they, they do have a series win over Jacksonville State already, which is, you know, going to, whether or not they end up at the top of the standings, that's who we had picked in the preseason. I think it's probably the most talented team in the conference. So that's already a good feather in their cap to have. And while this is a non-conference series, they also have a series win over Memphis, um, which is, you know, not within the realm of the American, not a very a good team, but, you know, for an OVC program to go win that series against a team that has a first round, still first round pick in Hunter Goodman, that's really kind of a big deal. So they've, they've played pretty well. Offense really kind of revolves around Jordan Cozart and Brock Anderson, two guys who were off to great starts in 2020. Whenever we were doing all of our offseason top 25s where, where Teddy and I were ranking you know, the top 25 of this or that or the other thing, whenever we were doing offensive top 25s, whether it was best games of the 2020 season, uh, likeliest players to win the home run race in 2020, all of that kind of stuff. Jordan Cozart and Brock Anderson's name came up in like every one of those, at least as candidates. Uh, and they are hitting the ball well again this year. Uh, pitching wise, um, 545 ERA. Um, oh, it's CRVC. Well, I was going to say in the OVC, that's not an alarming ERA. However, if you are going to be the best team in the OVC, it'll probably have to be a little better than that. The best teams in the OVC are usually a, a, a tick better than that. Not a high strikeout team, um, you know, probably a little more walks in the pitching staff than they would ultimately like. Jack Winninger has been the, the best starter for them. Um, but this will be a tough matchup because SEMO, SEMO is one of the more talented teams in the conference. And it just hasn't it's been pretty good this year within the realm of the OVC, but it hasn't been as good as I thought they could be so far. They've got a guy in Dylan Dodd is their best starting pitcher. He's an arm, the quality of which is, is better than a lot of what you see in the OVC. Like the OVC will have a guy or two every year. And he's one of those guys um, really hard thrower. who's having a, having a nice year. Um, offensively is a little bit more of a head scratcher. That's, this is a pretty offensive program typically. And they've got a lot of veteran pieces I'm talking about Danny Wright and Connor Bosler and Wade Stouse who just aren't hitting like you would have expected them to. I mean, these are guys who've been in the program a long, long time and they're just not having very good years, frankly. So um, I would expect that to get a little bit better as the season goes on. Um, but we, we shall see. So um, I think this is a, the reason why one of the reasons I picked this series is because I think if Murray state is going to really be a contender here in the OVC, I think this is the type of series where, you know, I think it's either going to prove it has some staying power or it's going to get exposed a little bit here. Now it is at home and that helps, 
but SEMO is a talented enough team that, that if Murray State has kind of smoke and mirrored their way to this quick start they've had, relatively quick start they've had in the OVC, SEMO is the type of team that can kind of smoke that out a little bit. So I think it's a, an interesting measuring stick series for the racers in particular. Well, we're going to call this the Hog Bowl, I guess, because the other interesting thing about these two teams is they both played at Arkansas already this year and weekend series at that. And, you know, I, I think at the time I talked about how, like, yeah, isn't it kind of weird that Arkansas struggled against Murray State and SEMO and game ones? And like, well, come to find out, these are two of the best teams in the OVC. And, you know, they they sure, you know, Jack State might be at the end of the year. But I mean, the fact that Murray State already has a series win there was enough for me to flip the field of 64 projection at this point to, to Murray State. You know, probably whoever wins this weekend will be in next week's field. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I, I think you're definitely right about it being a good test because, you know, SEMO traditionally is a little bit better pitching. And maybe that's just because Steve Beezer was a really good pitching coach. Uh, when he was at SEMO, but I, I, I do think that they've kind of carried that legacy a bit and they're going to throw the ball pretty well this weekend. Now, Murray State, you know, as Ar- ask Arkansas, like they've got a couple good pitchers over over at Murray State. But uh, if uh, if Murray State can turn this into something more of a offensive slugfest, I don't know that that SEMO is going to keep up. Uh, but yeah, this is this is kind of the. If they if if the racers get past this test, I don't know what test they would have left. I think you would just have to call them the unqualified favorite in the OVC for the rest of the year, considering that they would have beaten Jack State and SEMO to this point. And um, you know, they are officially have only played those those three conference series that that EIU one was a non-conference, Joe. Um if they if they pull this off within the first month, knocking off SEMO. And Jacksonville State, that would be that would be quite the uh, the start to OVC play for Murray State. It's just a year, I think, in the OVC where I think right now, anyway, there's still time for things to change. But right now, I think you've just got a confluence of a handful of teams led by, I think, Jacksonville State and SEMO who have maybe played a little bit under what I assume their potential is. Belmont, too. I would put Belmont in that group. And a group of teams led by Murray State and SIU Edwardsville, frankly, which is sitting at six and six. They're, they're on pace for their best season in the OVC in a long time, who have played a little bit maybe better than we thought. And so I think you've just got this mess kind of that you've ended up where everyone's more or less kind of in the same place. And, I, you know, I look forward to seeing if anyone gets any separation here, but I, I kind of doubt it. I think uh, Dan Skirka, who is the Murray State coach, deserves a bit of a shout out here. I mean, this is his third season. Obviously, your two didn't really, I mean, count it how, how you want to count it as, as the COVID season. But he's done a good job here, you know, kind of remaking Murray State into something. And, you know, when they hired him, he had been, he was an assistant coach at Walter State, which is, you know, one of the best junior colleges in the country. But, you know, he was Walter State's assistant coach when, when they went and got him. Uh, previously had been an assistant at Murray State. I didn't think much of it at the time. You know, Murray State hadn't been particularly relevant lately. You know, it's just one of those coaching hires that that falls under the radar as, you know, we're dealing with other coaching changes, the NCAA tournament and the aftermath of the draft, like all of that stuff just kind of runs together. And when they make 30 changes a year in baseball these days, it's kind of hard to, to give each its appropriate merit. Uh, so that one for me fell under the radar, but he's, he's done a, a great job 
in uh, just a few short years here for Murray State. All right, those are the uh, the biggest games, biggest series, I should say, of the weekend, the, the ones to watch. Uh, there are several other good ones. Like I mentioned, uh, the the ACC in particular has is good at providing some top 25 series this weekend. So uh, plenty to watch, plenty for us to talk about next week on the Baseball America College podcast. We'll be back here on Monday to recap the weekend. You can subscribe to the Baseball America podcast on your favorite podcasting app, be that Apple podcast, Stitcher, Spotify, anywhere you, where you get your podcasts, uh, subscribe, follow, whatever the, uh, whatever you want to do, just hit that button uh, there and we'll, uh, we'll drop a, a new episode into your phone on Monday, recapping this weekend. Until then, you can read all about it over at baseballamerica.com and Joe and I will have uh, further analysis on Twitter. I am at Ted Cahill. Joe is at Joe Healy BA. I want to thank everyone for listening to this edition of the Baseball America College podcast. Thank you to Rapsodo for presenting it. For Joe, I'm Teddy. We'll see you next time on the Baseball America College podcast. After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice-cold reward. Medela is the mark of a fighter. You've earned this rich golden lager with a crisp, refreshing taste. Because you know, the bigger the fight, the better the reward. You put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor. You are a fighter. Medela is your reward. Medela, the mark of a fighter. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Port, Chicago, Illinois. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.